Hello, and welcome to the Scottish Clans podcast. I'm Clint Edwards. Thank you for joining me for this third and final installation of the Scottish Clans for Beginners mini-series within this podcast. I'm sorry if my sound sounds a little tinny, a little bit echoey here. I don't have the ideal circumstances for a studio. I tried throwing a blanket up on this wall that I'm sitting next to to hopefully absorb some sound, and I don't really think that it's working, but I have a much better microphone these days, thanks to a kind donation from one of my listeners, and so it picks up sound a lot better. Unfortunately, that includes bouncing sound off of other objects in this room that are not meant to do this, but hopefully the sound quality is good enough that you can hear me very clearly and that I can get my ideas across to you and that you can enjoy this. So hopefully it doesn't distract from it too much. I had a little bit of delay jumping in there. I thought, what if I just wait till that music tapers off a little bit before I jump in, and that way I'm not competing with the wonderful sound of the bagpipes. Anyway, a couple of things I just noticed about starting this up. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to have you with me. I'm going to jump into a part of the history of Scotland, hopefully in a very basic, fundamental level, especially because I'm calling the Scottish Clans for Beginners. Episode one, we talked about what a Scottish clan is. Number two, in Scottish clans for beginners, we discussed the cultural roots of the Scottish clans, the different ethnic entities within what would become Scotland and that contributed to the kindreds that would dominate Scottish history. I'm excited for this episode today because I'm getting into a time period that I've been reading a lot about lately, and I feel like I've got a much better grasp about this time period. So I mentioned a book before, just had reached behind me and grabbed it real quick. It's called The Outlaws of Medieval Scotland, Challenges to the Canmore Kings, 1058 to 1266 by R. Andrew MacDonald. So I've been, I've, I've, I finished that book. There's a little epilogue at the very back of it that I, that I haven't read yet, but I've read that one and that one's really good. And then there's another paper that I found on academia.edu from Alex Wolf, who I've mentioned his name a lot on here before. And I've got a lot of my studying from, he, he focuses, you know, a lot of the clan stories that you've heard. To in, well, yeah, a lot of the, the clan stories that you've heard come from the 14, 15, 1600s and then wrapping up with the Jacobites in the first half of the 1700s. So this is, he, he focuses before that, talks a lot about the Picts, the kingdom of Dalriada, and that, that time period, he likes to dive into that quite a lot. And so this time period that we're covering today is on the kind of the late end of the things that he talks about, but he writes a paper called the, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's something like the question of Murray and the, and the kings of Alaba or the kingship of Alaba or something like that. And it, anyway, I'm going to try to paint a picture about that particular time period. So we're, by that specifically, I mean we're getting into the Canmore Kings time period. So 10 mid 10 hundreds into the mid 12 hundreds. So about the same period that that book by McDonald covers. But let me go do a quick recap of the last episode so that we can t pick up exactly from where we left off from right there. Okay. So let me go over the different kingdoms that existed. I'm going to do this super fast. Not so fast you can't understand me, but it, not a lot of detail is what I mean. So you have the kingdom of Dalriada, which is Gaelic-speaking, in the in western Scotland, to include the southern Hebrides. You have the Britons of Strathclyde, who are speaking a language similar to what would become Welsh in Wales, but the uh, their language died out. Maybe the Britons of Strathclyde, they think that may have lasted up into maybe the 10, 1100s. I know there was some talk on the, on the Scottish Clans Facebook group about 
there's a, a couple of the, the people who were talking, they were talking about the, the cumbric method of counting sheep uses the old, old Brythonic language numbers to count, count the sheep. Anyway, I think that's really interesting. But anyway, and that would have probably, that very northwest part of England would have been included in the kingdom of Strathclyde, the Britons of Strathclyde. So anyway, you had them, you had the Angles of Northumbria, that there, Northumbria at this time period, you know, the six, seven, eight hundreds is pushing up into what's now southeastern Scotland. And then the rest of the country that I haven't mentioned so far were Picts. And, and they spoke a language related to what the Britons of Strathclyde were speaking, but different enough that contemporary writers, such as the Venerable Bede, who lived late late 600, early 700s, he identified the Picts as speaking a separate language. So it was related, but, and I know without going into a ton of detail on that, it was related, but it wasn't the same as the language that the Britons of Strathclyde were speaking. Okay, so you had those four groups. Okay, until the Vikings show up. Now, the first Vikings are showing up in the late 700s. There was probably Scandinavian trading that was going on before that, but the Vikings, like you and I understand them, seaborne raiders, they were making their presence felt starting in the late 700s, 790s. And eventually, they would take control of the Orkney and Shetland Islands off the north coast of Scotland, and Caithness, which is the very, very far north of the mainland of Scotland, so just opposite the across from the Orkney Islands on the mainland. And then they also dominated pretty much all the Hebrides, clear down into the Isle of Man. And they also, so as, as the Vikings settled into that area and gained control of it, there, it's, it's interesting that the Gales did not altogether leave. Now, this is interesting because there was a lot, like a very high degree of place name replacement with the Scandinavian. So the, these Vikings are speaking Old Norse, and they come into these areas, and very, very few place names left. However, the areas, specifically speaking of the Hebrides, which are off the west coast of Scotland, they, these Vikings, these people of Scandinavian descent, ended up intermarrying with and adopting the language of the native Gaels of that area. And the ironic thing is today, if you want to hear, hear Gaelic spoken on the, on the street, where do you go? You go to the Hebrides if you want to hear that, that language still spoken, which is that's interesting because back then that was a very Scandinavian area. But the Scandinavians, like I said, they intermarried and they adopted Gallic culture and language. And so that not only explains the culture of the, the Hebrides islands, but down into what is now called Galloway. So that was also settled by the exact same mix, um, the, the Scandinavian native Gallic speaking mix. And so you had a kingdom developed there called Galloway. And you had, in the time period that we're talking about, you had Fergus, who is sometimes king of Galloway, but more often styled lord of Galloway, but very independent-minded. And he had controlled that very southwest part of Scotland. Okay, so now we, so we've got the Vikings established. And then later... And so the Vikings, once again, that 790s, we first see them really, they're really starting to gain a, a strong presence in the mid 800s. Now, something else really important happens that time period. But then a couple hundred years later, 300 years later, in the 1100s, the Scottish kings, through developments that I won't go into a lot of detail here, I have in other episodes, are huge fans of the Normans. And they invite these Normans north into the kingdom. It wasn't a military conquest like it was in England. It was by invitation. And you have all these Norman families becoming established in Scotland. The Canmore kings, the Canmore dynasty. And when I say Canmore, I'm talking about Malcolm III, who, yes, he is Malcolm Canmore from Shakespeare's Macbeth. In fact, Shakespeare's Macbeth 
is that's taken place in the 10 hundreds and that's where we're going to focus today's episode so you had the norman introduction there so a lot of your scottish clans that have norman names or norman backgrounds in that way are introduced into the country at this time period but let me try to paint a picture for you of the story of this time period and and help it move along and hopefully create a picture and a context for you to learn future things about this time period so we're going to go back and we're going to start with the vikings okay the normans haven't showed up yet you've got the four the picts the scots of dalrieta the britons of strathclyde and the angles of northumbria the vikings come in and the vikings came in violently at first we have the monastery of iona which is very important for christianity in that region very important the the monastery at iona was was ransacked on a on a couple or three different occasions so there was some violence there's other things that happened too the picts had their own struggles with the vikings but the vikings eventually get established there it, and when i say there once again i'm meaning specifically the hebrides caithness in the very north of the mainland of scotland and then looking north you got the the orkney and then the shetland islands off the north coast of scotland Okay, so, so now the Vikings are settled in. They are a presence. Well, what happened to the people who were ruling Dalriada? Because that, that territory that Dalriada was, the, the, the Scots, the Gaelic-speaking Scots of Dalriada, most of their kingdom was in the southern part of those Hebrides that the Vikings conquered. What happened? Well, if you recall from the last episode, there were two kindreds who alternated back and forth between, and I don't think they were deliberately sharing it. I don't, I don't think this was like, okay, it's your turn now. You get to be the kings. But however it worked out, two kindreds would go back and throne, back and forth of having the throne of Dalriada, and that was Canal Lorne and Canal Gabrin, or Gabrine. So what did these two kin groups do? One picture. Now, when, I, when I'm going to paint this picture for you, this is not necessarily absolutely the way it happened. And I'm digging my heels in, and this is what I'm accepting. Alex Wolf, in his article that I mentioned earlier that I've been reading, says that that is a way of presenting this. I'm going to present it to you because I think it makes a lot of sense to me. And if you want to be an expert on this and dive further into it, then by all means do, and then come back and share with us what you learned. Anyway, these two leading kindreds of Dalriada, as these Vikings start to come in stronger and stronger, and their position becomes untenable. So here's, here's one thing that people have, some have advocated that happened. By the way, if you want to see who has advocated these different viewpoints, go back to the before I gave you enough detail that you could probably find that article and and look that up and read it. And Alex Wolf has it all in there. Everybody who which different historians have painted or espoused different viewpoints of this time period. I just want to make sure I'm academically covering my bases. So so Canel Lorne, Canel Gabrine, what do they do? Well, in, under this theory, and and there's there's just thinking of all the things I've read, I, I can go along with this. Canel Gabrain pushes east. They Keep in mind they were very much intermarried with the Pictish royal family. All right. In fact, it, you could even make the claim, and, and many have, that the Pictish royal family at this time was actually speaking Gaelic by the mid-800s. And that... You know, well, was this king, was was Kenneth MacAlpin the first king of United Dalriada and Picts? Was he a Pict or was he a Scot? Okay, so just there you have a piece of information. The kingdoms unite, and he, I believe it was in Forteviat. Forteviat? I'm not really sure. I've had a few of you so kindly jump in and, and help me out with pronunciations in the, in the recent weeks, but um, I keep on, <laughs> it's hard to do it all at once, right? So anyway, he sets up his his headquarters, his throne there. So he's pushed east out of Western Scotland and joined up with the Picts. 
Now, is because Kenneth McAlpin, was he a Pict or was he a Scot? Well, he probably had the blood of both people flowing pretty strong in his vein, in his veins. And they set up, now keep in mind, Kenneth McAlpin, for he and about two or three generations after him are known as kings of the Picts. All right, not of Alaba, which came to be the Gaelic word for Scotland. The kings of the Picts. So how did he identify himself? I don't know what he thought, but that's what he's called in the records, in like the, the annals, the annals of Tiranach, the annals of Ulster. Anyway, so the so the one leading kindred pushes east. The other leading kindred, Kenel Lorne, pushes northeast up the Great Glen and becomes the earls in some sources styled kings of Murray. Okay, so all I want you to know from that is that you have the kingdom of Dalriada in the west of Scotland. Under Viking pressure, the two leading kindreds push east into Scotland. The one merges with the Pictish royal family. Perhaps Kenel Lorne in becoming the ruling kindred of Murray in the north of Scotland. Maybe they did too, but it's, it's harder to tell there. And so now you have a kingdom of what would be called the kingdom of Oliva. And that was kind of the core of what would become Scotland. To the north, you have the, the kingdom, the Mormyrdom, the, the earldom of, of Murray. Those are all different words used, but you have this big area called Murray, and it has its own lady kindred, kindreds who claim descent from Canal Lorne. It's hard to do it's hard to tie that up with complete certainty that they were, but that's who they saw themselves as the, the heirs of the Canal Lorne. And for all we know, they they very well were. Okay, so you've got those two kingdoms. You've got the Vikings in the west and in the north. You still have the Britons of Strathclyde in the south, west, and the Angles of Northumbria in the southeast. As we, as we move into the centuries, um, things really start to develop here as we get into the 10 hundreds. In the 10 hundreds, Macbeth, I'm going to tie this into something maybe you all know about. Macbeth, guess where he was from? He was from the leading kindred of Murray. And he kills Duncan. In Gallica, it would sound more like Danacha or Danachi. But he kills Duncan and becomes king of Scotland or Alaba. Isn't that interesting? He's from the leading kindred of Murray. And why, why were these leading kindreds of Murray attacking and competing with these royal lines farther south in the kingdom of Alaba? Some people think that it might be a continuation of the competition be between Canel Gabrine and Canel Lorne from way back in the Dalriada days before the Vikings showed up. One way or the other, one way or the other, subsequent kings, as we get in, so Macbeth is, that's the 10 hundreds, and Malcolm III ends up, it's a little bit more complex, but I'm not trying to get too far in the weeds than what I'm already doing. Malcolm III, who's been pushed down into exile in England, which is not, quite yet um, Norman England yet. The Normans haven't conquered there yet. But Malcolm III goes to exile in England. He actually comes back to Scotland and he ends up marrying a an English wife, which has huge a, a huge cultural impact on this kingdom. Okay? They name their sons now he had a, he actually had a different wife before her. I'm not going to get way into that story, but but his wife by this English woman, his his kids by the English woman, were all had all English names. If that tells you how strong the cultural influence was there. Okay, so that's Malcolm the Third. Now as we go into the really get into the 1000s, 1100s, 1200s. Malcolm III's descendants rule Scotland for that roughly 200-year period, right up until Alexander III, okay? Now, 
Malcolm III's descendants would get very friendly with Norman England. It's a longer story. I don't want to go too far into it. But they invite Normans up into the country. So now you have this other ethnic element. Now, the Normans are an interesting group of people. I've talked about them before. They're basically Vikings who had settled in northern France, adopted French language and customs, intermarried, and then they push north in, in 1066. They conquer England. William the Conqueror becomes king there. And about 100 years later is when Malcolm III, his descendants, big fans of the Normans, and inviting a lot of them to settle up in Scotland and giving them lands and titles. Now, one thing that I learned from this book by MacDonald, this wasn't a complete sweeping off of the native aristocracy and replacing them with Normans. That happened in some cases, but that is not, that would be a drastic oversimplification of this process. And MacDonald gives many instances in there of native aristocracy maintaining their positions. Okay, so you've got these different kindreds, right? You have you have the Alaba with the descendants of Canel Gabran ruling there. You have and and it really it's the descendants of Canel Gabran and the Picts. Their descendants are ruling that kingdom. You have Murray in the north, but farther north and also circling around to the west, you had the Vikings. The Scandinavians. I think after a while you can't call them Vikings anymore, but they were definitely Scandinavians. And the king of Norway definitely played a big role in development, in historical developments in that area. So there was still that strong connection. They weren't completely assimilated yet. But that's what you, and it's in this time period, ladies and gentlemen, that you have the beginnings of a lot of your clans that coming out of that time period, this, this. And 1000 is on the really, really early end of it, but really you get into the 1100s and 1200s. Now we can see see a lot of the clans of Scotland develop. And I just thought I'd mention a few of those. Now, eventually, let me just actually, before I get into the actual kindreds, let me just back up and say that the kings of Alaba, right, Kenneth MacAlpin's, his great, great, I can't remember which generation it started with, they, they stopped calling themselves or they stopped being seen in records as kings of the Picts and being known as kings of Alaba. Okay, this is the, like I said earlier, the core of what would become Scotland. They're very aggressive. You have, comp um, you have competing claims to the throne by the people up in Murray, now, keep in mind, these, these people are still, even though they're, I'm talking about different groups of people, they're still intermarrying with each other. And so that, that when people have claims on thrones, that gets everything all tangled up. But you have a lot of conflict going on in this 200-year period in the, from the 1000s into the 1200s. You have, in the 1100s, you have Summerlid. Summerlid's a fascinating character. I encourage you to go study on him a little bit more. Maybe he'd be worthy, worthy of an, uh, his own episode. Because he is the sire of some major kindreds within Scotland that would have huge influences on the course of Scottish history. Summerled comes from this mixed Scandinavian Gaelic cultural milieu of the, of the Hebrides and Argyll. He's, he, he gains, he fights his way to the top, gains power. He was already coming from a probably a, a very powerful position, uh, some kind of aristocracy, but it's hard to, to know a lot about his origins. But he fought his way to the top and ended up being the, they called him Ri Inchigal, or King of the Isles of the Foreigners, which was referring to the Hebrides. So he went from being of Argyle to King of the, King of the Hebrides, basically, or King of the Isles. And so he leads a major um, attack on the west of Scotland from the Isles, and he's defeated, and he actually dies. That's the Battle of Ren Renfrew. I believe it was 1164. You have repeated assaults on the kingdom of Oliva from the, the region of Murray to the north. All right, now this is interesting because you might have some different 
kin groups coming out of that that we would recognize today. And then you have the an, a different Scandin mixed Scandinavian Gallic group up in Caithness in the, and in the Northern Isles, the Orkneys and Shetlands. You had Harold Madadson, who was a prominent figure up there, and he presented the King of Alaba with his own problems of his own. Um, you have the McWilliam kindred of Murray. They were one of, if you want to be specific about Murray, the McWilliams and also uh, a, an allied kindred, the McHeths, who would provide insurrections, rebellions, attacks, invasions on the kingdom of Oliva. And then you had Fergus of Galloway down in the southwest of Scotland, and he gave the kings, these Kenmore kings, fits too. He and his sons did. And by this time, I believe that the Angles of Northumbria, that Scotland has acquired roughly what would become the southeast portion of the country from the Angles, wrested it from their control. Okay. So we have, that's the time period that we got going on. We have this, this core that would become the Kingdom of Scotland. Now, I'm, I just mentioned several um, throughout these generations of the Canmore kings, these different attacks that would come from the north, the west, the south. Now, what's not clear is whether they were all just people who had, who were hungry and were out to conquer some more territory, or if these were in response to an, a very aggressive expansionist policy on the part of the Kenmore kings. And so there, it very well was going both ways. Now, would these other people from outside of the kingdom of Alba had taken over? Could they have taken, would they have taken that throne of Alba if they could? Sure. So I'm not trying to say that they were just, they were just, it was all in self-defense because these kings of Alba were so aggressive. Now, I, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying it was a, definitely a back and forth. And the Kenmore kings did have an aggressive uh, expansionist policy generally throughout that dynasty. You see that especially you get into the mid-1200s and you really see the um, the Scottish kings are making attacks on these different, especially on these Norse, Norwegian-held territories. And the Battle of Largs, where the king of Norway comes to fight the king of the Scots, is actually in response to Scottish attacks on his territory, which had been his territory for two or three hundred, three, let's see, mid 1200s, mid 800s, that's, yeah, about 400 years. So that, that was in response, that one for sure was in response to Scottish aggression. Okay, so there, I kind of got, I, I wrapped up what I wanted to cover as far as history. I hope that was a narrative that makes sense to you guys. I hope I didn't bounce back and forth too much in the years. But if you just take everything I said and keep it within those boundaries of, especially when I said as much between 10 and the 1000s and 1200s, you got, you got different kingdoms and they're fighting each other and eventually the kings of Alaba, or later the kings of Scotland, they win. And they include these other areas as part of their kingdom. Okay, so the, the Britons of Strathclyde, Galloway, the, the Isles, the, the Hebrides specifically, no, clear up into Murray. If there was ever doubt in the minds of the people of Murray that they were their own kingdom, like I should say if there was any idea that they were their own kingdom, by the time this this period is over, they are firmly within control of the Scottish monarchs. Um, clear up into, I would say, I don't know, the reign of Robert the Bruce, Robert the First, is really interesting as it regards the Murray area to the north. When I say the north, I'm not talking about this vague area, although what was called Murray back in these days was a lot bigger than the political entity that later would be called Murray. But Inverness, the, the, the southern shores of the Murray Firth, that would have been, we don't know exactly how far east it went. Did it go clear east to Buchan? Or did it stop short of that? Maybe the valley of the Strathspey? 
the valley of the river space. Strath means river valley. Um, that it, is that was that the eastern boundary of it? We're not really sure. What was the northern boundary? We don't know. Was it everything that was not controlled by the earls of Caithness? Every all the negative space that we don't have accounted for was that all Murray? We don't, that's something that Alex Wolf actually in that article I mentioned earlier that he was getting into. Anyway, Scotland would the kingdom of Scotland would the, and these kings of Scots would end up pulling in all of that territory that would all become part of what's now Scotland and that's how that happened. Okay, so there there's my narrative. I hope I sure, sure hope that that was. I didn't start throwing all these side things in there. I hope there's some kind of a coherent picture there, but there you have it. It's it's hard it's hard when your whole podcast is not carefully scripted to never go off on a tangent. But ladies and gentlemen, as far as time is concerned, I am not even close with the time that I have to be able to write scripted episodes. So hopefully you can bear with me on this stream of conscience, the stream of conscious um, style of podcasting. And I hope that you have right now in your head a, a coherent picture, somewhat coherent, of the way that Scottish history developed from its earliest recorded days, speaking specifically back into the days, uh, the earliest Kings of Dalriada, clear up through the the time. I mean, let's let's take that period clear up until Alexander the Third, and then that succession crisis that happens. And then, if anybody has seen Braveheart, Outlaw King, that's all taking place at the end of this time period. Okay, so that and that's actually incidentally now that I think of it, that's why all those kings that were competing or those not those kings but all those candidates for the kingdom Robert the Bruce John Balliol John Cummin well guess what all of those guys were coming from Norman Norman lines that had significantly intermarried with local or with the original Gallic population and had tied themselves into these originally Gallic kings. And so Robert the Bruce was probably a Gallic speaker. Maybe not as his first language, probably Norman French was his first language, but the cultural context that he was raised in, who his mother was, the part of the country that he was from, he probably spoke Gallic too. And for that matter, John Balliol came out of the exact same vicinity and was tied into some of the same families. I mean, of course, they're all related because they're all related to the Scottish king, which would make them related to each other, wouldn't it? Uh, depending on what line and which female line, I guess. But what what kindreds came out of this time period that we would recognize today? Just to let you know, there's a lot of kindreds who didn't even get their start at this, this early date, but a lot of them did. Let's start. I mentioned earlier, I mentioned Summerlid. I've mentioned McDonald's a lot of times on this podcast. And so from Summerlid... We have the McDonald's, the McDougal's, and the McRory's. All right, those those were the Mc, so Dougal was a son of Summerled and Rory and Donald, the namesakes of the McDonald's and McRory's, they were grandsons. They were Dougal's nephews. Dougal was the senior, so the McDougal clan for a long time was the senior in that kin group there. But who chose which side during the Scottish Wars of Independence? changed all that and who was the most powerful, completely rearranged the balance of power there. But so not only do you get the uh, McRory and McDougal clans and the McDonald, but the branches of the McDonald. So all of the McDonald branches that bore the name McDonald to include other branches that were McDonald branches, but that did not, in many cases, did not use the name McDonald. They, they chose a, a subsequent ancestor downstream from Donald and named their clan after him. So two examples of that were the McAllisters. So you have McAllister of the Loop. They're out of Kintyre and McKeon of Arden American. Okay, those are those are two McDonald branches. Also sometimes Clan Ronald or Clan Ronald, you don't see that the McDonald name used, you just see Clan Ronald, but they were a, a major McDonald branch too. 
So you have all of them that come out of Summerlin who comes out of this time period. Another one, th this is a really interesting line, and if, if I could give you a source to read up more on this, John Bannerman has written a lot about the Macduffs. The Macduffs were the Earls of Fife, and they were actually descended from Kenneth MacAlpin. They're, they're part of that same family. Now, the royal line, the ones who kept the, the throne, you know, because the Macduffs at one point in time were close enough related to this family that they were candidates for the throne or, or the lines that would be the line of, of people that would become the Macduffs. Um, they, they think that, and going back to John Bannerman proposed the idea that, and, and I've heard this from others too, it wasn't just him, that the Macduffs were given the earldom of Fife and being the premier earls within this kingdom and the right to crown each succeeding Scottish king, they were given that in order to like, hey, you have the honorable position within this kingdom, but don't, don't, don't be competing for the throne. And they seem to have been content with that. Um, one evidence of this that you see, actually, Robert the Bruce was crowned by a Macduff. Now, it looked like it was a female um, representative of the kindred, and that's that's really interesting in and of itself. But I, if you want more information on that whole thing, I'm not going to go too into, into it too much. But that was a Macduff privilege to crown the Scottish kings. And so that's and it's actually represented accurately in Outlaw King. Now, from the Macduffs, you get the Macintoshes, who claim descent from a Shaw Macduff, who actually got his. So he was he was um, a son of the Earl of Fife or a brother of the Earl of Fife, depending on which one you're referring to. Shaw Macduff goes north with, I think it was Malcolm the Fourth, who was a Canmore king in one of these fights against Murray and these rebellions and insurrections or attacks or whatever you want to call them, Shaw Macduff travels north with the Scottish king to put that down, proves himself. Malcolm IV is happy with his service, and he's given lands and positions up there near Inverness and in the Findhorn Valley. Okay, so that's so the, so from the Macduffs, you got a guy gets settled up here, and that's where the Macintoshes come from is the Shaw Macduff. That's who they claim descent from. Okay, now the actual clan Shaw claims descent from that is specifically the Shahs of Tordarach claim descent from Macintosh chiefs. So they come from the Macduffs as well. The Farkersons, and I didn't do a deep dive on this, but it looks like the Farkersons claim descent from the clan Shaw who claim descent from Macintoshes who claim descent from the Macduff Earls of Fife, and so we can we can trace this line. If this is all accurate, we can trace these guys clear back to Kenneth MacAlpin to 843. That's a long way back to trace your family. I think it's pretty cool. Also, a different branch that I can tell the only thing they have in common with the Macintoshes is that they're both descended from the Macduffs, but I don't know how closely are the Weems, the Weems of Fife. Um, Weems, it looks like when you see it written, it looks like Wemys, W-E-M-Y-S-S. They think it comes from a Gallic word for cave, which there are caves right by the castle that the Weems built as part of their, the core of their territory there in Fife. So the Weems also, in fact, not only the, the Weems claim descent from the Macduffs, they claim to be the male line representatives of the Macduffs. So that's kind of interesting. Another kin group that comes out of this time period is Freskin de Moravia. Now, this is an interesting, he's part of an interesting movement in Scottish history. So you've got the kings of Alba, and they've got these, during this time period, especially we're talking about specifically the 1100s, they've got these, threaten, that, these threats from, from the fringes, the, what would be the fringes of their kingdom, right? Th threats from Murray, from in the west with the, the Isles from the southwest with the in Galloway. They've got these threats. One thing that they did, they carried on a tradition that the Normans had started in, in England by, by putting people who are loyal to them out on the, 
the frontier of their territory and that these, these people have a stake in it. In fact, if you want to trace this clear back, that's how the Normans got started in France, is the French king gave land to Vikings on the frontier, up on the coast, where it was getting pounded by raids, made it theirs in the hope that they would, now that it's theirs and they have a personal stake in it, they would defend it. The English did that, so you had the, the marcher lords of Wales, right? Because you got these wild, unruly people there to the west of England who who have a hard time being tamed. So what do the Norman kings do once they get control of England? They put guys that they know are loyal over up against those Welshmen. Well, guess what? The Scottish kings, the Canmore kings, did the same thing. And one of the men that they put in the far north, in addition to Shaw Macduff, was Freskin de Moravia, who some people roll him up in the Norman group, but he's actually a Flemish from Flanders. And he was given territory in this far north part of Scotland that was called Murray. And he flourished up there. Seems like, from what I've read of him, a very capable man. And from him descend the Sutherlands, the Murrays, and maybe the Douglases. Amongst the Norman families that come out of this time period, these, especially these, this 1100 time period. I'm, and now, I would say this, if you have a Norman last name, but you're from Scotland, you're probably from this group of Normans, so the list could be very long. I'm just going to name a few of them, okay, and I hope I don't offend anybody by leaving them off the list, but the ones I'm going to specifically mention are the Cummings, or the Cummins, whatever sparing, spelling or pronunciation variant of that name you want to use. They were... If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've heard me talk about how powerful the Earls of Argyle, the heads of Clan Campbell, the chiefs, how powerful they were at certain times in Scotland, or maybe even the Gordons or the McDonald's in, in, the, in the Hebrides in Western Scotland. Before Robert the Bruce, the Cummins were that group. They were so powerful. And... They, they had territory spanning all over Scotland. And I'm not, this is my goal here is not to give a huge history on every clan, but the Comans were a big, huge deal. Later, the Stuarts would gain the throne of Scotland. And the Stuarts were part of this Norman movement into, this Norman movement into Scotland at the, at the invitation of the Scottish kings, the Canmore kings. Now, kind of like I mentioned with Freskin de Moravia, by the way, Moravia, that's just the, the Latin version of Murray. In, in Gallic, it sounds more like Merv, so you have that V sound in there, so Freskin de Moravia, that uh, would tie in there. So Freskin of Murray, or of Moravia, I mentioned that he was rolled up with this Norman movement, but really it was Flemish. Well, you could do the same thing with the Stuarts. The Stuarts were part of this Norman movement, but really, if you want to be nitpicky about their origins, they're from Brittany, which is significant because just like in Flanders, they had their own culture and language and all that going on. Not technically the exact culturally Normans. Well, the same thing was true. The, the Bretons in Brittany, in north, the very northwest of France, they had a Celtic language that was spoken there. Now, did the Stuarts speak that before they came? I don't know. I just know that they were from Brittany. And... Also, that we could include in that, we did a whole episode on the Elliots. The Elliots were from Brittany as well and came north probably during the same time period. Um, the Gordons. The Gordons, I think, were from a Norman background. I've seen different competing theories on that. But the Gordons come from that time period. And also another one from the southwest of Scotland that was tied into this, this mixed Scandinavian Gallic population of Galloway were the Kennedys. And I just read a really cool article about the Kennedys. And I'll maybe I'll post a link to it on, post a link to the, the where I got it from was academia.edu again. That's a great source for more academic style papers because I'm kind of Wanting to dive into a little bit more, like you've heard me say before, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, a little bit more than whatever you can find on a Google search. 
academia.edu, and they're not paying me to say this. As of yet, I have not. I don't have any sponsors. I am. I know I've been threatening to do that for a long time, get sponsored. I'm farther down the road. I've made a lot of progress um, on in that effort, but I'm not there yet. Um, but the Kennedys, I just read this this paper, and the Kennedys were an example of these local Gallic-speaking families that did not just get swept aside by the Normans who were coming in. So the Normans did a really good job of integrating into, yes, they brought a lot of things like, like the feudalism. A lot of people trace feudalism in Scotland back to the Normans. But feudalism didn't replace the kin-based the, the kin society. Uh, they, they formed this unique fusion. And if, it, if my understanding from my master's program is correct, and we got into this a little bit, the whole system of feudalism, is that feudalism did that everywhere it went. There's not one specific type of feudalism, and if it's not that, then it's not feudalism. It made local adjustments wherever it was adopted. Very true in Scotland. So the Kennedys, though, were a native Gaelic-speaking family who survived through that huge cultural adjustment where these Norm French-speaking Normans are being given positions and titles all over the country, and they're part of that. And they became the the leading kindred in Carrick, which actually was Gaelic speaking quite up late after a lot of the other places that started that, where it started to recede. You know, like Gaelic used to be spoken in Fife, but it it left Fife a long time before it left Galloway and Carrick, and Carrick being the the seat of the Kennedys. Anyway, that's interesting, and and they, you can tie them back into the Lords of Galloway, like Fergus and his descendants that I've mentioned. Um, one last kindred I want to mention. And this is something I've been curious about for a long time. One of the, there's there's two main kindreds of Murray that gave the kingdom of Oliva or the kingdom of Scotland fits to no end. They were the McWilliams and the McHeths. M A C H E T H. Now the McWilliams, it, it's claimed in sources that their last Okay, okay, this is this is disturbing, okay, I'm, but this is what happened. The last person of that bloodline that could have any claim to the leadership of Murray was a baby girl. I'm, I'm not, you know what, I'm not even, gonna, as a guy who has little girls that I'm awfully fond of, I'm not even going to tell you how they killed her. But I'm just going to say that the, they had her killed. It was very violent. Um, and that's, they, so, so the McWilliams are done. Now, is that true? I don't know. Did, the, did, did a different branch of the McWilliams go on and found other kindreds that under a different name we're very familiar with today? I don't know. Wouldn't that be fascinating to get into that a little bit? But let me go to a different family or clan or a kindred that were very closely allied to the McWilliams during this time of constant strife between the Canmore kings and the kingdom, of, or, the kingdom or earldom of Murray. And that's the McHeths. The name Heth, that's the sons of Heth, this kindred that's known as McHeth. The scholars are pretty confident that Heth is just an Anglicization or a, an English way of saying the Gallic name I or I. There's kind of like a uh, the D, when you see it spelled in, in Gallic, it's got a D on the end of it, or sometimes a D-H. And long, long time ago, that may have been a, like a like a T-H as in then, not as in with. So that was, so that what we're really looking at is the sons of I or Ide. Okay, well, what is the linguistic origin of the name Mackay or Mackay? If you're here in America, or even in some places in America, Mackie. <laughs> the, the linguistic origin is it's, it's Mackay, sons of I, or I'd. And the, and the location within Scotland is, is correct as well for, for there to be this link. So do the Mackays of Strathnaver, very far north of Scotland, is that where they settled after things, after these insurrections or rebellions against the kings of Oliva or Scotland, is that where they went when this all didn't work out? 
because I, I have not, I've seen that theory proposed. There's a kind of a foundational work by a guy named Angus Mackay back in the 1800s. What is it, like the Book of the Kindred of Mackay? Or I, I'm, I'm positive I've posted a link to this somewhere in the Scottish Clans Facebook group, but um, they claim descent, that, that they are descended from the, from the Macheths as they are seen in the, in the sources, the contemporary sources. And I haven't seen anything that would dissuade me from thinking that that's true. Very likely. And they were even able to keep the name because Strathnaver is so far north. It seems like they could go over there and if they could gain the become the dominant kindred in that area, they're going to kind of get left alone. And then to the point where they can have a chance to grow up into a, what they, they would become. The Mackays of Strathnaver became a very powerful clan. They could, they could bring a lot of guys onto a battlefield. I just think it's fascinating that we could maybe tie them back into the Maketh's of these, the, the 1100s. So anyway, there's another possible kindred that we can tie back into this time period. So I, so, okay. So wrapping this up, this narration, I hope one that we've painted a little bit of a picture of the time period and what was going on at this time. And, it, and giving you some kind of a framework. Because I find that if I have a framework and I'm learning something new, I can plug it into that framework and it sticks better. If I don't have a framework, then I lose that information because there's no context. So hopefully I've helped you with that, build some context for this time period, right? We started before the 10 hundreds, just kind of touching bases with the last episode and moved up into between the 10 and 1200s and hopefully shape that picture a little bit better for you. And then we talked about the different clans or kindreds that we would recognize today that came out of that time period. So I hope that's been good for you. Now, what I'd like to do next before I wrap it up is I'd like to just touch on some listener feedback because a lot of times I do this at the beginning and I just want so I'm so interested to jump into this and start talking about it that I kind of um, left it alone until the end. So hopefully that's then that's stick around and listen to this because there's some good things that come out of this. One um, comment from the from the Facebook group that I'd like to touch on is from Steve Guffey. Thanks, Steve, for commenting on here. He's reaching out on the Facebook group here, inquiring about the McPhee clans, especially the Guffey and Guffies that came to America in 1770. So he was reaching out. Um, one thing that Neil King, as he responded to his comment, and, and I responded on there as well, that something to that we just want to bring up when if you're a lot of you who are listening to this podcast or I, I would say probably the vast majority of you that are listening to this podcast are doing so for family history reasons. Now, I know that's not true for everybody. Some of you just love history and you love fun history and interesting history. And so this is not geared more for one than the other, but I do occasionally make some genealogical comments. I am not a genealogist. There's a different skill set between genealogy and history that they overlap there's a lot of overlap but i have been working on some of my own genealogy trying to push those lines further back and further back and my training in history is helpful but it's not the same thing as studying family history and understanding how to dig up those records so that's that's a different deal but I will make this comment here that was involved in this discussion that I just mentioned, started by Steve Guffey. Not everybody in Scotland who had the same last name were related and part of the same clan. So there were a lot of people named Donald and or Duncan. There's two very popular names in Scotland back into the time period where people are starting to adopt last names. And so not every Donald's son or even MacDonald were necessarily related. Also, people took last names, and we've talked about this a little bit before, who were not blood-related, but within the, the territory of the leading kindred, okay? So if you have 
if you, if you have, let's say just for the example, McKenzie's, McKenzie were, they were a huge clan and had, not just like numbers wise, but territory wise, the McKenzie's were huge. Now, if you were on McKenzie territory and they were the leading kindred and you were responsible for showing up when they called the battle and and you and especially if you felt confident in their leadership and you're like, these are some people we could really get behind and these are people we want to be loyal to. It was not unknown for people to use the McKenzie as their last name, even with zero blood connection. All right. So just and one thing that. Um, that Neil King in response to Steve Guffey says, just the real question we want to ask there, if you've got this last name and like, ah, am I tied in with this family? Well, one is look where the territory, if you want to see if the actual clan that you're wondering if you're tied to, look at where their territory was, especially the heartland. Yeah, I've mentioned on here before, territory shifted hands throughout Scottish history. It didn't, it, this was not a static, like my Scottish map. It wasn't that way those exact lines and territory boundaries throughout all of Scottish history. There, there is a lot of exchange going on, but it is safe to say that there were some parts of Scotland that could be called a certain clan's heartland. Like this is where they got their start. This is where they rose to prominence. This is their, this is the territory. So what I would encourage you to do if you're like Steve Guffey and you're wondering if you've got that connection is try to find out at least where in Scotland did your folks come from? So my McFarland ancestors, which I'm working on this line right now, they came, they actually lived in Northern Ireland. They're part of the Ulster plantation, which is interesting because most of those Scots were not Highlanders, Gaelic speaking Highlanders. But in as much as the lines that I've seen are correct, we, we go, you know, they go back eight, mid 1800s back to back into Northern Ireland, County Tyrone, and several generations there, but then back into roughly the same part of Scotland that the McFarland territory was in. Their territory is on the northwestern shore of Loch Lomond. The town that this ancestor of mine was from before this line moved to Northern Ireland was not exactly in the territory that the McFarlands had, but it was the same part of Scotland. I mean, and I'm not talking about huge geographical regions. I'm talking about, like, even if you're on foot or on horseback, it wouldn't be that far to go visit the chiefs of the McFarlands. So, anyway, same, same, same neighborhood. So, pretty confident that there's not some other McFarland or Farland kin group. So, that's just what I would, my suggestion off of that response or that that conversation that we had on Facebook. Also, I'd like to thank Rory McKenzie. Rory's got his name spelled here in Gaelic, the first name there. And I don't even know if that's his real first name or if that's exactly how, he, if he was born R-O-R-Y or whatever, but I think it's cool that on here, on Facebook, he's going by Rory McKenzie. And I do believe in a previous comment, I saw that he was trying to learn Gaelic. So that's cool. And he's got a post on here talking about Highland dress. Now, this Facebook group is a group for the Scottish clan specifically, but if you're studying your ancestors, you kind of like to get a visual of them, don't you? Like, what do these people look like? Well, I don't know if every single one of my Scottish ancestors, or any other ancestors for that matter, were actually warriors. Some of them were, I'm confident. It's just like people whose ancestry goes back to the Scandinavia. And then I just assume that their ancestors were Vikings. Well, probably because if you get back that far, you family tree branches growing exponentially, you probably do have some Vikings back in there. But not every single Scandinavian that ever lived was a Viking. It's not even during the Viking time period. But, um, but we do want to have some kind of an idea of what these people look like when we talk about them, right? We envision our ancestors. And so Rory McKenzie has a couple of pictures on here and, and starts a discussion about what were specifically what were Highlanders wearing. We we know that I, th I think this has been beat to death that William Wallace didn't wear a kilt probably. In, in fact, nobody during that time period was wearing a kilt. And when the kilt did come into use, people that were from the part of Scotland that William Wallace was from probably didn't wear them anyway. So 
there's some problems there. So what were they wearing? And so he starts the conversation there. So I really encourage you to go to the, the Scottish Clans Facebook group. I'm still seeing people um, like and share the Facebook page, which is awesome. It's fine. But the uh, I'm not paying as much attention to that these days as far as monitoring comments and, and all that. So anyway, thank you for those of you who are pitching into the conversation on um, on the Facebook group. And I just want to, there's, I've got Jeremiah Spence who's made some comments on there. I don't want to neglect him. Um, also, there's, I'm just trying to scroll back through here because there's some, there's some Morrison activity. And there's um, a, a gentleman that's wanting me to do some stuff on the Naismith group name, Kindred, from Western, I think it's in the Glasgow area. And just because I haven't got to your comments or done a podcast on your kindred yet, please don't hold that against me. Please don't hold that against me. Um, I'm doing the best I can with the sources that I've got. And some of you have even said, hey, if, you, if you'll if you do it, I'll, I'll even do the homework for you. Here's some sources for you to, to look at. And I love it. Please, please, please don't stop. And please don't let my tardiness in getting to doing an episode on your clan push you away from from the podcast i hope you stick around and look i've got a, i still have a long list of requests for people doing to 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 do their 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 clan when i say their clan i mean the, the one that their last name is the or maybe they're they've got a female line like the mcfarlands that's not my last name obviously it's a female line on my mom's side and so <clears throat> Excuse me, throat getting a little dry here. Time to wrap it up. But anyway, please don't go away if I am taking so long to get to your clan. I I love it. I take it as a compliment that you would want me to talk about your people. And I just I have there. I'll tell you what. There will never be a shortage of material to cover for this podcast. I will have to get into some pretty big other stuff in my life before I stop doing this podcast. I'm not saying I plan on doing it indefinitely. I've got plans for the podcast, uh, even some ideas for expansion. And but the first things first, I'm working on getting it, uh, working on getting it monetized, and also I'm working on getting set up to do guests. I'm this close. You can't see my fingers. I'm making a small space between my thumb and my forefinger. This close to getting being able to understand how this technology works i'm going to have my wife do some dry runs with me and uh, make sure i got the tech perfectly nailed down because i do not want somebody to set aside time to be on here and then all of a sudden it all goes south technologically wise and i just wasted their time and do, do they come back and be, oh, i just want to make sure that that is tight before i have somebody on and what am i I've I've got a, I've got some plans. Let's just let's just leave. I've got some plans. Here's what I'd like. Here's my invitation for you. Like I make at the end of the podcasts. First of all, thanks for sticking with me this long. <laughs> Second of all, if you have a, a somebody that you know that you think would dig this podcast, would you just go ahead and share it with them? I think every single platform that people listen to this podcast on has a, a some way to share it with somebody. So send that to him. Um, also, if you want to get engaged in the conversation, come on over to the Scottish Clans Facebook page. Or not not the page, sorry. The group. The group. The group is so much more interactive. And we're starting to see the benefits of changing from the page to the group with these great comments and sharings that are going on there. There's people really have some good ideas and or, or good questions. Because Steve Guffey's was more of a question reaching out for some help with his with his ancestry. So thank you, all of you, for who have ever posted on this. For those of you who haven't or you haven't even checked it out, I encourage you to go do that. Will you like, give the, give this give this podcast a little little love, man. Give it a give it some stars if you're listening on uh, on the Apple Podcasts. Give me some stars. Give me a, a written review. And you can do that. You can give me a written review on Apple Podcasts. You can go to podbean.com or the Podbean app, and you can send me a little message on there. 
or you can, yeah, so Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Facebook. Those are the three things that I check for comments. If you're trying to leave, I actually found people leaving comments on on my account on academia.edu, and I and I haven't responded to so you. If you're one of those people that did that, I appreciate it. One of you actually gave me a warning that some people are using my name for some stuff and they shouldn't be. So many thanks, many thanks, and I appreciate it and look forward to hearing from you. And until we you either chime in for the next podcast or until I see your comment on any of those platforms, Martian Lave and Drasta. <laughs>